Colossians 2 is where we are studying this morning and looking at this wonderful word that Paul has for us. He is again transitioning from, uh, not a purely, but a, a largely doctrinal or doctrinal or truth-saturated section into a continued truth-saturated section, but more in terms of the application of the truth that he has been speaking to us about. And what difference does that make in our lives and how ought we to live our lives? Because there are many voices that tell us, I mean, it seems like everybody has an opinion how how you ought to conduct your life, what kind of food you ought to eat, how you ought to to uh, invest your money or, or where your kids ought to go to school or just everybody has an opinion and not all the opinions are reasonable and, and, and fact-based and so forth. But when we come to opinions, how we ought to live our lives, we come back to the authority of God's word, not these other voices that are speaking authoritatively, persuasively. They have persuasive argument, which is why Paul says, don't let anyone take you captive with philosophy or with the persuasive argument that they would lead you away from Christ. He says in this passage, I'm going to read the beginning of verse 20, but you know how sometimes chapter divisions are unfortunately placed? I'm going to read through the chapter division, just boldly right through it, and to the verse 4 of chapter 3, and you'll see, hopefully, the connection. He has two ideas, two if statements here in verse 20 and then again in verse 1 that uh, we will uh, build out and identify and, and just have a good time studying what does Christ want us to do in this life? Colossians 2 and verse 20 says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves or yourself to decrees? Do not handle, do not taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom, and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory." That is just a tremendous section as he's transitioning from, again, the, the presentation of the truth, what Christ, who Christ is, what he's done for us, to then how ought we to live in our daily lives and what, who has the authority to speak informally or even in, in terms of uh, a position of influence and uh, authority over us. He says, you, you, you come back to who you are in Christ, your, your, um, your identity, which is secure in him. There are these two ways that you can construct a verb. Uh, we get kind of technical and grammatical and so forth, but uh, he is talking about indicatives. He's talking about declaring reality. He says, if you have died with Christ, that's a, a reality. You are dead with him. Therefore, the imperative is don't submit yourself to worldly decrees, decrees that would take you away from Christ, his glory, his sufficiency, the salvation we have in him. If you have been raised up with him, then you ought to keep seeking the things above. And he's going to continue into chapter 3 and into chapter 4, the implications of our salvation in Christ, that having been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that changes how we can and should live our daily lives on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Friday afternoon or whenever the case might be. We are Christians. We are in Christ. So he says here in verse 20, if you have died, now the question is not, 
Have you died? If you've died, we don't know. Maybe we ought to check your registry, check your check your papers. No, he's, he's saying if you're in Christ, and remember, all through chapter 1, chapter 2, he's talking about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you uh, hold fast to the head, that you ought to uh, persevere in this knowledge, uh, stand firm in it, uh, don't let anyone take you captive from it. Um, Christ is the, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He is, he's all these things. So it's not a question of, are you dead? No, you are dead. If you're in Christ, you are dead with him. Now, he says that this is a, an assumed fact for the sake of his argument here. He's saying that, I mean, sometimes you can translate it this way. Since you have died with Christ, because you have died on the basis of your death in Christ, what are you doing doing this over here? You have died with Christ. This idea of union with Christ, being con- combined or connected to him, is throughout the scripture, especially in Paul's writings. He's so much focuses on that idea. Most times, really, this, this, this phrase, with Christ, is only used a handful of times, but Paul's primary language when he's talking about our union with Christ is to be in Christ or in him. It was all throughout chapter 1 and into chapter 2 of Colossians, but elsewhere as well, pointing out, and even into chapter 3, Christ is our life. It's not like Christ is a nice feature. We appreciate what he's done and, you know, give him rewards and awards for his, for his uh, service. No, apart from Christ, we are nothing. And apart from our abiding or being connected with or in union with Christ, we can do nothing. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You must abide in me. The reality of that is, how do we abide in him? Well, in chapter 15 of John, he says, obey my commands, obey my, my word. You'll abide in me and I in you and, and, and so forth. Abiding in Christ means that we believe what he has said is true and right and good. And knowing that that is true and right and good, we turn away from that which is not true and right and good. It is false. It is wicked. It is diseased. It is yuck, nasty stuff. We have, I don't know if you all have been in the habit of eating lots of watermelon in the summertime. Uh, we have, I don't know, I think we have, we've had five in our house at any one time last week. And, and uh, they last us, well, not very long. But I was cutting into one last week and it looked good on the outside. And even part of the inside was good. But then I got to this part that was not, mm-mm. Not good at all. And it was rotten. And I've used that term before. Rotten watermelon. It's just, it's not pleasant. You don't want that. You, you take that and you get rid of it. You don't eat it. You don't consume it. It's just not good. That's what this teaching, this false teaching that is infiltrating the church in Colossae, and if you don't mind, this 21st century church worldwide, it's rotten watermelon. It looks good on the outside. It has a promise of wonderful, sweet, juicy niceness. And it's, yuck, throw it out. That's no good. Compared to what is good and, and right and true, the good watermelon. Oh, excuse me. I think there's one on the fridge in the back. Um, because we didn't have room in our house, and you, we want to search after that which is true and right and good. That is God's word. And we have this union with Christ that we want to celebrate. We want to say, this is what, this is where our life is. We're not going to be distracted by these other things over here. If you have died with Christ. Now, you can check your pulse. You all are still alive, right? We're not dead yet. Elsewhere, like in First Thessalonians 4, those who have died or gone to sleep in Christ, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a spiritual union with Christ in which we, have, we don't, we, I, don't live anymore. Paul says it in Galatians 2.20, um, I have died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Whoa been crucified with Christ. So there's that. Now, Paul was writing it. He was dictating. He lived a bunch of years after that. 
you know, Galatians was one of his first letters. He lived another 20, 30 years after that. But he says, I consider myself as dead in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, I died with him, such that when Christ died, his death counts as my death. Well, that's good news because the wages of sin is death. If Christ died for me, he paid my my fine, my debt, and I can be satisfied in him. But it's not, it's one almost like a TV commercial. There's still more to come as part of this offer. And if you, you know, and more yet, and thousands more. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been granted to us in Christ. When we are having died with Christ, this means a whole lot. Not just that we will escape hell in that future day, but now we don't have to live in the power, the authority, the oppressive domination of sin. We don't have to live under the oppressive domination of Satan, who is prince of the power of the air. We are freed from those things. We are having died with Christ. And then, of course, verse 1 of chapter 3, also raised up together with him. We've already seen those realities in even in chapter 2 of Colossians. But he comes at it another way, again, to remind the Colossian believers what these false teachers are presenting to you sounds good. It sounds attractive, it sounds reasonable, it sounds persuasive, it sounds Christian. It is nothing like that. Avoid it. Get rid of it. Rest in what Christ has done for you. Rest in who Christ is. He is the second a person of the Godhead. He is that one who has come down for us. He is the one who has accomplished your salvation. If you have died with Christ, you are then uh, part of his experience your part of his blessings. He has given blessings to those who come to him in faith, returning from their sin. He says, you have died with Christ. This spiritual death is now introducing our union with him. We weren't united with him before. We were slaves of sin. We were under the domination of Satan, you know, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Ephesians 2 talks about, Ephesians 6 talks about as well. And Christ is uh, head over all those things. Christ is the Redeemer, the Savior, the sufficient, wonderful Lord. You died with him. It's a permanent reality. You, you're not going to come up alive apart from him. And being dead with him means your you know, resurrection is, is connected with it because Christ cannot be contained in the grave, right? All these wonderful uh, uh, truths from Acts 2, for example, Paul, Peter's preaching at, at Pentecost. Uh, Christ cannot be contained by the grave or by the tomb or by Sheol. He, he is life. He's the prince of life. He's the author of life. And so connected with Christ in his death means you are also connected with him in his resurrection. It's a package deal. It's not like somehow, uh, well, some some Christians are only connected to his death, but somehow they didn't get that add-on, that resurrection part. They're, they're just over here and they are dismal and they are dejected and they are uh, overcome with grief and, and despair and, and their own sinfulness. And I don't know if Jesus can ever forgive me. He doesn't know all of the bad things I've done. Excuse me. He does. It's no, no surprise to him uh, what you have done. And there's nothing that can keep you out of salvation except unbelief. Now you think, well, unbelief. Yeah, because if you don't believe, you don't receive that gift of, of righteousness, then you have no righteousness in yourself. Paul says the Jewish people sought to accomplish righteousness based on their works. They were so zealous for it, and we'll see this in this passage, but they neglected the obvious and only answer, the only source of righteousness, being righteous before God above, is by faith in what Christ has done. These people 
the false teachers, that is, are in Colossae teaching things that are not right. They detract the people, the church, from the glories of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, how that applies to each one. If you have died with him, then there's there are implications of your union with Christ in his death, that you are dead, here he says, to or from, if you have died with Christ from, you're, you're no longer liable to these things, you're no longer under their uh, authority, under their tutelage, and you're no longer responsible, you're no longer be, going to be judged by these things, those, those are not for you anymore. And he says you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. And you think, again, I, I'm still living in the flesh, and there's that battle, you know, Romans 6 and 7 talks about this battle being in Christ, but then also still in the flesh, and the things I want to do, I don't do, and things I want to do, I don't do, and ah, what am I going to do? Well, look to Christ. Always look to Christ for justification, being being declared righteous before God, but also sanctification, being made more righteous in our practical daily lives. And then that future day when Christ will make us righteous, give us a glorified body. We look forward to that full package. And having one, having been declared just, being declared righteous, we know that those other things are true as well. It's it's a chain of, of like a train that cannot be disconnected. It cannot come apart. What God has promised, he will bring to pass, which is a comfort to all of us because at any given time, you may look at any of our beloved people here and think, I don't know if that person's a Christian because of what they just said or what they just did or that face or whatever, or what I heard about them. I don't know how can they be a Christian and do that. If you were to take a snapshot of any one of our lives at any particular point, you'd, you would uh, unmistakably argue that uh, I don't think that person's saved. Not that we have lost our salvation, but are you really saved in the first place? Are you dead? Have you died with Christ? When you look at the overall picture, hopefully you can see evidence of the Spirit's work in us, that we're less like we were yesterday than we are today, or less like from a week ago, or less like we were before we came to Christ. Boy, there's some differences that God makes in us. And yet, it's a constant work a constant work for us to, this idea of death, he introduces it here, being in union with Christ, but he's going to introduce it again in verse 5, that we ought, of chapter 3, consider yourselves dead, or consider the members of your earthly body as dead to these different things. Now he's, he's using that idea of death in a different way, in that way, and we'll look at it when we get there. This focus, this uh, word he's saying here in verse 20 is, you have died, you are in union with Christ, now your identity is with him. And that then has the bearing on, you don't need to be subject to these elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world. We saw this phrase earlier, it's verse 8 of chapter 2, that we ought not to, and in fact are not, subject to these things. That He says, um, verse 8 of chapter 2, see to, it, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and an empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now you get the idea there that the elementary principles of the world, they're not under Christ. They're not honoring him. They're not celebrating his uh, salvation that he offers to us. So being dead to those elementary principles, that's a good thing. The question is, what are those elementary principles? Well, he gives an example at the end of verse, or in verse 21, these rules, these, these rudimentary regulations and so forth that 
doing them, doing these rules or not doing them, and as because these are all negative rules or restrictions on our behavior. If you don't do these things, then that will justify you before God, or that will sanctify you before God. And Paul says you're not subject to those things anymore. You are not; those are not part of your experience. Are not part of your salvation journey, of journey being justified, sanctified, glorified. You're not. That's they have no bearing upon you now. Now, lest you think, well, that means we can do whatever we want. If there are no rules, if we're not subject to requirements and regulations that God has for us, then, wow, what's, us, what's to prevent us from just going flying off the handle and being all wicked and God's grace can abound and to us sinners, right, in Romans 6? Shall we not continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, what? What? You have died with Christ. What are you still going back to that old sin uh, activity and stuff for? You have died with Christ to these elementary principles. You don't need, if you don't mind, you don't need training wheels on your motorcycle. Have you ever seen that? Now, I know there are some trikes out there and those other, and four-wheelers. Those aren't training wheels. That's a different kind of whole thing entirely. But to put little kid, um, what did I just say? Uh, training wheels on the side of a motorcycle? You don't, I mean, motorcycles are for the mature, right? You don't need that stuff. Or uh, you ever see uh, a full-grown adult, well, you ever see Michael Phelps, right? Great swimmer from yesteryear. I think he's retired now. You ever see him jump into the pool with big floaties on his arms? Because he might, you know, he might just succumb to the water. Uh, you don't see him do that. He doesn't need it. Being mature, being dead with Christ, that over there, that's a hindrance. That will lead you into things that are not right. Now, again, lest we think we don't need rules, we don't need regulations, Paul, we don't need commands, we don't need to obey these things, Paul is going to give us a whole bunch of them in chapter 3, how we ought to live and conduct our lives. But the difference there is, how do you view your salvation? What's the basis of your salvation? If you have died with Christ, then everything you do is built on that foundation, being in union with Christ. If you think that somehow based on your performance of what you do or don't do, what you say or you don't say, what you think or feel or whatever, or not, well, that gets a little bit different, but what you say and or what you do or don't do, especially in the context of food, which we'll look at here, uh, if you think that your salvation is resting on that, you're not resting in Christ. And everything that you do flows out of that commitment that if I do certain things, if I don't do other certain things, that somehow God will love me. That somehow that will be my righteousness. That will be my standing before God. And Paul says, you are going to be sorely disappointed because Christ will condemn you. If you're not having died with him and you're trying to justify yourself or sanctify yourself based on your performance, mm -mm, it's not going to work. You've got to rest in what Christ has done. And then there are imperatives or the implications of our salvation, our union with Christ, that do affect our daily living. So he says you've died with Christ to these elementary principles, these regulations that are there. But he says why, here in verse 20, why or how, what in the world are you thinking? As if you were still living in the world, why do you submit yourself to these decrees? For example, as he says in verse 21, he says, if this is true of you, then what are you doing living, subjecting yourself to these rules and requirements over here? The only purpose of those rules and requirements is for you to have a sense of self-righteousness. Somehow I contributed to the salvation that Christ has accomplished for me. I somehow have, have earned my keep, you know, uh, room and board, maybe as an extra charge when you're in heaven. So I'll, I'll do that with my own righteousness, my own uh, 
a, a treasury of merit, you can also talk about, in a Roman Catholic kind of a sense, that somehow there is a treasury and, and we add to it based on our works. And sometimes our works aren't enough so we can draw on other people's. That's why it's called a treasury of merit. The saints can p- contribute. Even Jesus can contribute to that treasury of merit. And us poor sinners can, can uh, tap into that every now and again when we need to. That's false. That is not right. The only treasury of merit we need is what Christ has done, his blood and righteousness. That's our only plea. That is our only uh, security. And anything that detracts distracts from that into our own self-works, our own self-righteousness, it detracts from the beauty and glory sufficiency of Christ. Paul says, you're not living in the world. You don't, and again, lest you think, well, he's talking about our, we're, we're dead in, in Christ, and so we're not living in the world. No, he's talking about us being Christians, but on a different basis. We are citizens of heaven. Yes, we are regenerate. We are, don't walk in step with the flesh. We don't walk in step with the world. We are, as I've mentioned before, contra mundum. We are against the world, not in a, in a, hateful way. We love, we show kindness, we spread the gospel, we are ambassadors of Christ and so forth. But we are out of step, out of sync, out of phase with what the world is celebrating. And especially, I mean, really, the only two religions in the world are a works, well, over this way, a works righteousness based on what I do or don't do versus a done righteousness, which was just Christ, what he has done and accomplished and what we can then participate in. He says, if this reality, you are dead with Christ, you are in union with him, why do you think that somehow obeying these elementary principles, these basic rudimentary ABCs, uh, these these tools for the immature, the un, unsuspecting, unbelieving, uh, immature kind of people, uh, how do you think, why do you think those can help you? Why are you distracted and drawn away from being taken captive by this false teaching? Why? Because it sounds so good. We, we can, we can somehow then have a reason for boasting in ourselves. You know, I'm not so bad as, as some other people over, over there. Good grief, those nasty people. I, I know I'm, I'm a sinner, but not like they are. And, and somehow then that, we can congratulate ourselves and think, you know, I, I'm really better. And I know Christ had to save me, but he didn't have to save me for much. I was really a good fellow. And it's a reason for boasting in ourselves and not boasting in Christ, which is wrong. We boast in what Christ has done. It's accomplished fact from him. We are in union with him. We are not subject to these elementary principles, these tutory things. You know, these uh, the, the law, for example, was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Our righteousness is based on faith, not based on our our works. Our works, our good works, flow out of that. You ever read verse 10 of Ephesians 2? I mean, we, we memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's gift to God, and not a result of works, lest any man should boast, because we would boast in ourselves. But verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. Wait a minute, you said it wasn't works. No, it's, it's the good works. We are created unto created uh, in Christ Jesus unto those good works, which God prepared before, and that we should walk in them. It's that difference between is your salvation founded on Christ and your union with him or in your works. In one sense, our works justify us before God, which they don't. They can never do that. They only condemn us. But in another sense, being founded on Christ, our works flow out of our relationship with him. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Our works are not a basis of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. But he says, you're looking back to the other foundation. You are living or you're trying, it's, it looks like you're trying to live in the world. 
according to the world's standards against uh, and the world's uh, pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and somehow uh, who is God that he should condemn me or judge me? I'm really a good person. I've never done this, that other thing. And I don't go with people that, that do those things. And, you know, we, we do not have a sense of God's holiness as we ought to. We do not have a sense that when we are convicted of sin, a lot of times we're convicted and, and sorry for the consequences that have to be applied to us. Oh, man, I can't do this anymore because of what I just did. Whereas we ought to be concerned and broken and remorseful over the fact that we've just offended a holy God. We have just trampled, as Christians, we have trampled, when we deliberately sin, we know that we're good we ought to do and we don't do it. When we deliberately do that, we have trampled underfoot the Son of God. We say, Jesus, I appreciate you dying for this sin I'm about to do. I'll get back to you in just a moment after I have my little indulgence over here. That's not the way that we ought to approach Christ or approach God. We want to do everything that pleases him. We want to bear fruit for him. We want to have our words, have our desires always characterized by Christ, not by the world system, not by, as he says here in verse 23, not our fleshly indulgence, going after the desires of the flesh. It's not to say that somehow, um, well, I'll get into that in just a moment, that we should somehow be ascetic or somehow be not ascetic, but ascetic, meaning we restrict our bodies, we treat it shamefully and all this kind of thing. No, that's not helpful at all. Don't submit to those kind of decrees. Don't follow their orders. What do you do and listen to those things? They are false teachers. They lead you away from the sufficiency of Christ. Don't submit yourself to these decrees. Don't listen to their orders. Don't listen to their commands. They sound persuasive. They th- sound authoritative. They sound like they're reasonable. They sound like they are scriptural even because false teachers, even Satan himself, likes to present himself as a, a, a messenger, an angel of light, a, me- a messenger of God's truth, but he distorts it, misquotes it, and so forth. Even in this these commands, we see some measure of uh, allusion to that garden, uh, Garden of Eden conversation between Eve and the serpent. But Paul says, don't listen to these people. Don't submit yourself to these kind of decrees, these dogmatic statements that have no basis. You, you're not in that world anymore. You, are, uh, you have died with Christ. So he says in verse 21, this is an example. This is not Paul giving us commands. He's not saying, don't you handle that. Don't you touch that. Don't uh, taste that. He's, those are not his commands. Notice they're in quotation marks. These are what the false teachers are teaching, that their whole life of righteousness is based on what they don't do, based on restrictions, as opposed to, Paul is arguing, the whole basis of our living is what Christ has done. And what Christ is doing in our lives, not based on what you are doing or haven't done. He gives three commands, and he could have listed more perhaps, but he gives these ones, these three, and he says, do not handle, nor taste, nor touch. Now, you remember back earlier in this in this passage, he had talked about those who um, are, in verse 18, these who are defrauding you of your prize. They're saying, I, I know Christ has done some good work for you, but you've really got to build on that foundation. You've really got to add your good works, and you've got to to restrict yourself in these things. You've got to, here it goes on, he says, they delight in self-abasement. They delight in a false humility. Um, you remember how the Pharisees would be so given to uh, fasting, 
and not just fasting privately, but fasting in public. And they would, you know, be all gaunt and everything, and they wouldn't anoint their head, and, and they'd just be nasty looking. And they would be parading their righteousness before men. Or when they were praying, right, they would be go out into the central marketplace, and, and God, all this kind of nonsense. And Jesus had words for them. He said, don't do that. That is self-righteousness. That is trying to justify, that's getting the praise of men. Tell you what, you want the praise of men, you can get it easily. Just agree with people. Don't be contrary. Don't be weird. But when you get the praise of men, that's all you get. You get no praise from God. So which is more important? You like the praise of men? You like having the applause of the world? You like the likes? You know, the, the followers on the social media? Uh, which indicates probably that you're in step with what the world is celebrating. If you are outside that, mindset, that worldview, then probably you're going to have people shout you down or, or defraud you, it says here. Defraud you? You can't speak like that. How do, who's, who are you to say this? Or they start throwing stones at you. Well, you aren't a perfect person. Well, obviously, like you had to stretch for that conclusion that you're not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person. Who is? Jesus is. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. The most talked about person in scripture, which happens to be David, not a perfect person. But he could, could claim this, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, to whom the, the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's David, not a perfect person, but justified because of God's work. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He's lied. And not any number of other sins that he committed. And yet he can be justified. Moses, maybe the second most talked about person in Scripture. Another murderer. Not, not, I mean, this is the company we keep. That's because they're justified. That's why we can have unity with Moses and David and, and other people in our contemporary time because of what Christ has done. Rest in him and what he has accomplished for us. Verse 18 again talks about the, the idea that their whole religious system is based on this, this false humility, worship of angels, which Paul says don't worship angels, it's foolishness. Christ is the one, the king of angels. They go into detail about visions he's seen, being puffed up for nothing but his flesh and mind. Um, they are the ones who are, uh, actually verse 16, backing up just a little bit more, he says, let no one judge you, let no one be the arbitrator. Well, you can't eat this, all oh, good, you ate that kind of food, that'll, that'll get you extra points in heaven. No, let no one judge you in food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Those are shadows of what's to come. The substance, the body, belongs to Christ. This idea of food rules, I think, is what Paul is talking about here when he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's talking about food, food and drink. And he says that there's a certain batch of people who will put so many restrictions. Now, it's interesting how in the Lord's timing we read Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, and, and how they brought down a decision how Gentile believers ought to be received and how they ought to conduct themselves in the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And they talked about food rules. They talked about don't eat things that are strangled and all this kind of stuff. How does that relate to this? Do not handle nor taste nor touch. They were not arguing that your salvation is somehow based on what you do or don't do. Make sure you don't eat food that's been strangled, you know, still with its blood and keep kosher laws and, and all this stuff. And sexual immorality is not that you can be a adulterer. He's just saying in the sense of what is proper for Jewish people, they had certain uh, uh, protocol for for intimacy that, that the Gentiles had no idea what you're talking about. And, and the, the council in Jerusalem is saying, for the sake of not giving offense, not for the sake of salvation, 
because salvation is in Christ, but for the sake of not giving offense and, and being uh, kind to your Gentile, excuse me, your Jewish brothers who are, I mean, it's the whole Romans 14 and 15 thing. The weaker brother and the stronger ought to bear the, uh, Galatians 6, the stronger ought to bear the, the uh, burdens of the, of the, uh, the weaker. It's that kind of idea. It's not a basis of salvation, as Paul is saying here. These false teachers in Colossae were saying, well, you've got to do this, and your salvation is depending on it, and your salvation, your justification, your sanctification can be advanced in accordance with how stringent you keep these requirements. Some people, and we've seen them throughout history, uh, you know, John the Baptist was not, he was strange in many ways, but he was he did not think that wearing uh, burlap, you ever like burlap? I mean, as a as a garment, undergarment, you know, it's kind of scratchy and itchy and not so comfortable. But he wore it, and he also ate locusts and wild honey and so forth. Did he do it because somehow he thought God would like him better in burlap? Does God prefer you being uncomfortable and 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 uh, you have to go out and harvest your own food? Do you remember how God fed Elisha in the wilderness? Elijah in the wilderness, in the in the wilderness, how he fed him with ravens, which are unclean. Uh, are they unclean? I forget now. But he fed him with, with food, and he said, eat and then sleep, and eat and sleep, and all this kind of thing. God provides these kind of wonderful things for these people. They were saying, no, you can't have that. It's almost like, I mean, if you came up with a silly rule, like you can only eat salt on the second Tuesday of the fourth month after a full moon, well, the full moon's every month, after uh, summer equinox, I mean, just kind of weird requirements. And you can only, uh, you can eat the white of the egg, but if you get the yolk, then that's bad. And somehow, because it symbolizes this, and the angel told me this, and you ought to do this. And when you eat the white of the egg, you can eat two eggs, but not three. I mean, all these restrictions, it's not in Deuteronomy. You're not going to read these restrictions there. Although you say, well, God had a lot of restrictions on that too. Yes, to show how sinful we were. To show how wicked we are, These, the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Righteousness comes by faith in Christ, not based on our works. And even Jesus said, when, he, when this context is, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, the context is, or the, the larger conversation is Jesus presenting, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's not food that defiles a person. It's what comes from the heart that defiles the person. Food comes in the body and it, it does its work in our body and then it goes out of the body. It, you cannot be defiled by food. Thus Jesus said, uh, thus the gospel writer said, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And yet these these ascetics, these false teachers, these people are saying, no, you've got to have severe treatment of the body in order for God to like you better. Do not handle, don't taste this stuff, don't touch it even. And somehow God will like you better. No, if you are in Christ, don't submit yourself to the, those decrees. This idea of handling and touching are are very similar, although this word uh, touch is, uh, or excuse me, handle, this first one, doing a handle, is the same um, word as what Eve used in the garden when she answered the serpent and said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Well, God didn't say anything about not touching the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did say don't eat from it. Don't consume it. And she inter, inter, introduced that other command, command not to even touch it. not to, And it's not like touch kind of thing, but a, a grab and hold on to. So many times, and this, this word is so many times used in the gospel to identify when Jesus came up to heal somebody, he came out and touched them. It wasn't just a touch like that, but a, a, a touch, which in, especially when you're dealing with lepers, and they're unclean. And Jesus would go and and just grab them, hold on to them, or the dead. Remember when he touched the um, 
the daughter of, of the synagogue leader, get up. He would associate with unclean because they're not unclean anymore. Jesus makes them clean and whole. He's able to give life and health to them. So this idea of touching or, or handling is not just a, a, a touch, but a, a, a holding on to. It's the same word that we saw. Is it the same word, same idea, holding fast the head. We saw it earlier in this context, not holding fast the head, not being connected to that. It is that idea of, of union. Don't, don't, they're saying do not handle, do not, do not grab onto these things, do not to hold onto them, um, which it's fine to do. Could Eve have touched, you know, handled the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and ill? Well, the question is, how close do you want to get to sin and temptation? I mean, if you're, if you want to avoid it, which is, which is why these commands sound so right and sound so helpful. Well, we ought to set up bar- barriers and, 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 uh, um, obstacles to our sin. Well, yes. If your, if your right eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out and cast it away from you. There are those kind of requirements, but it's not on the basis. It doesn't form the basis of our salvation. It forms maybe how we work it out. There's that different foundation. Are you in Christ? Are you dead with him? Or are you somehow thinking, what I do really matters because my salvation is on the line? No. If you're in Christ, you are in Christ. You are in Christ eternally. You are. There's no question about it. If you have questions about, am I in Christ? Well, we come back to the fundamentals. Do you believe certain things about him? And are you turning away from sin on a daily basis? Not just, I repented back in that day, and I turned turn to God from idols to serve living and true God. Well, are you daily turning? Are you daily considering yourselves as dead to sin? Galatians 3 and verse 5 that we'll get to sometime. It is that basis or foundation of your salvation that is at stake here. When they say, these false teachers say, do not handle, don't taste, don't eat this stuff, don't consume solid food. And they're talking about fasting, perhaps. They're talking about, well, you need to have you know, all these different restrictions, fast four times a week and all this kind of, and don't eat, and you can eat this, but you can't eat that, and don't eat this much of it. And as if that meant anything to us? It doesn't. These are elementary principles. It sounds so informed, so authoritative, so helpful to us, but they're not. If they distract you from what Christ has done and your identity in him, then they're not helpful at all. This last, actually one other aspect, maybe a kind of a subtle implication of this, when it says um, do not handle or do not touch here, which this last one talks about, there is, and it may be kind of subtle, you can take it or leave it, there, as an, an additional aspect of false teachers, when they're trying to introduce a works-based righteousness, it has to do with food because that's something that we can watch you do. We can watch you when you're eating. I saw you take an extra portion of that lasagna. That's unclean. You shouldn't eat that. You should only, you know, well, the next Sunday we have our potluck. So we'll be taking, I'll be there at the checkout watch, watching what you're eating. Don't touch a woman. First Corinthians 7 verse 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. It could be that part of their idea here is that you need to abstain from food and drink, but also forbidding marriage. And think, how in the world, where are you getting that idea? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, but also 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, where Paul says these are doctrines of demons, and they have commands teaching about what you can eat and what you can drink, and also abstaining, well, abstaining from foods and prohibiting marriage. That's not right. Is that what Paul is talking about here? It could be kind of it's a it's a connected, a tangential argument. But it's again, what you do or you don't do really has a basis of your salvation, your justification, your salvation, your progressive sanctification before God. It could be. I think Paul's idea here is mostly having to do with food and drink. 
He says, don't handle, don't taste, do not touch these things. And this idea of, of tasting can, uh, well, has the idea of not just tasting it, but also consuming it and devouring it and so forth. And then touching here is just a, a basic, uh, that would be like a touch. You can't even, don't even smell it. If you smell that bacon sizzling and then that's, it makes you unclean, you've got to go do 40 penances or something. No, it's not that. We look to Christ. We celebrate him. We are anchored in him. We are steadfast in him. Stand firm in him. I mean, I could, I'd read all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, but he, he says, for example, in verse 6 of chapter 2, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. We are thankful for what Christ has done. Now, we'll see the implications of it as we go forward into chapter 3, but it ought to give us cause for rejoicing, saying Christ is my Savior, Christ is my rock, Christ is my sure foundation, Christ is my refuge in a time of storm. Christ is the only reason I know that I am free of condemnation. <laughs> Romans 8.1 Those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no cause for judgment. Whether we eat this or don't eat that or, or do this. Now, I need to say something about, because I mentioned it kind of in passing, that it doesn't matter what we think or what we, see, what we, what we, what we think about or, or meditate upon. Words that we think about are important. And we need to bring every thought captive lining up with the obedience of Christ. He is the one that we measure all these arguments, all these these thoughts and opinions and, and uh, statements and commands and everything. We, we bring it under the headship of Christ. And if there's something that does not agree with it, like this false teaching, cast it away. That, that's not helpful to you. It is distracting. You need to bring everything under the headship of Christ. And if there's something that we're in, inherently denies who Christ is or what he's done, has no benefit to you, has no... Uh, uh, advantage for you to somehow uh, play with the idea or, or think about that. Ideas do have consequences. Paul says, take, make sure that you're thinking Christ's thoughts. Make sure that you're listening to him. Make sure that you are measuring everything that you uh, consume, not just food, but every idea that you think about, every uh, music that you listen to or, or, or a video or film or, or article or every kind of, there are voices that are speaking that are not godly, that are not truthful, not real. And they are so attractive to us because we are almost like being carried away by this false doctrine because it sounds so good. It sounds so, you know, love is love. It doesn't matter who the other person is or other persons are that we can love or or that, uh, um, you know, stolen uh, bread is, is sweet and or stolen water is sweet and you want to go out and do this thing. Have you ever tried this? And other people that are wanting, they're in, not just encouraging, they're demanding you to come over to their path. Don't listen to them. There, there's prudence in, in terms of restrictions that we place upon us, but not, again, as a basis of our salvation, only as a fruit, because we want to do everything that pleases God. We want to bear fruit for Christ. We want to, to give full honor to our, to our Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are, there are commands that we see in, in chapter 3 that we ought to consider. But again, it's only because of who we are in Christ he is the one who makes us accepted before God. He is the one that, that puts us on a sure foundation, not as the world uh, tries to give peace, promises peace, all this. No, the world doesn't give peace. 
Uh, they promise it. They don't give it. They give heartache. They give uh, distress. They give destruction and um, ruination, despair. It's not good what the world offers and demands that you fall in line with. Don't be, Romans 12, 1 and 2, don't be pressed into the world's mold. Don't think that somehow, oh, the world has a better idea. That's what Eve believed. She was deceived. What does it say? She was deceived by the serpent. It sounded good. Why? Who is God that he should be God and that we should be restricted and not have the knowledge of good and evil? Who is God that he should not have anyone equal to him? Well, he's God. He's the uncreated one. And we are his creatures. What do you think? Who's God? And how dare he have, have a first place in everything? Well, he's God. And we're not. And we ought to bring everything under his his headship. We want to live in such a way that he is honored and glorified all over the place, in and through us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for our foundation in Christ. Uh, we pray that you would straighten out these uh, maybe abject and kind of wonky statements I've made during this, this Bible study time. Please help us understand your truth. Please help us to rest in what Christ has done. Help us to give glory to the Son. You made that claim. Um, back at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Please help us to listen to Christ. Help us to draw near to him. Help us to realize we have no life apart from Christ. He is our life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. When he is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. We pray that that day would be soon. In the meantime, please help us to live our lives circumspectly. Please help us to live in a way that pleases you, that is thankful for what you've done to us, not trampling upon your grace or presuming upon it or saying, well, I'll sin so that God's grace can abound in me. No, please help us to walk uprightly in this very dark world. Uh, teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously in the present age and godly in the present age. Uh, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your perseverance in and through us. Uh, we thank you for your promises, which will never fail. Please help us to bear fruit for you and grow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.